0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks With The Deal with our guest today, Dan Klipner, the global co-leader of Sidley Austin's M&A and private equity group, a member of the firm's executive committee and a managing partner of its Los Angeles offices. Dan, thanks for being here.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. This is quite a treat.
0: So we're, we're going to, to talk about a, a couple of things today. Uh, first of all, your, your early career, how you came to M&A and private equity in Los Angeles. You you're moved to, to Sidley and the, the process of expanding its M&A practice and what you've enjoyed about management. Uh, your work for Cirrus and Zelnick Media, which are two of your longtime clients, and then finally, LBGT and diversity issues. So starting with your early career, how, how did you, you get into corporate work, and, and how did you end up in Los Angeles?
1: Oh, boy. I was a,
0: um,
1: a New Yorker, born and raised, a uh, product of the New York City public school system. And as I got a little older, always drawn to the deals um, you know, sort of some people would open the sports pages of the New York Times. there used to be there used to be newspapers. Um, but I would be drawn to the financial section and uh, the Wall Street Journal and and didn't really know what a corporate lawyer did, but was attracted somehow to the idea of deals and deal making. And so I became a finance major in college and went to law school uh, with this unusual idea of being a corporate lawyer. And then I started out of law school at Simpson Thatcher in New York, and that group at that time allowed you to do different areas, uh, whether finance or credit or m A. And I uh, gravitated to the m a side, to the big deal side that that was uh, fun. One of the biggest deals at the time, It shows you how things have changed was Matsushita, which we know as Panasonic, when they they did a $7 billion acquisition of MCA following Sony's acquisition of Columbia Pictures. And that introduced me a little to Japanese clients, Japanese culture, and the firm had opened a Tokyo office. So they asked me if I would relocate to Tokyo for a short time. Well, turned out to be 30 months, two and a half years. And on my return to the US, Matsushita decided to sell 80% of MCA Universal to Seagram. And Seagram was also a client, and I was involved in all of that on the buy side, on the sell side, a relationship with the Japanese, and also, coincidentally, a relationship with Seagram. And so after Seagram acquired Universal Studios, they went to the firm and said, you know, if you guys are going to represent us, somebody should be in LA doing the universal stuff. And that somebody was me. And so as an associate, I went off to LA to start a branch office for a major New York law firm.
0: And, and you stayed in LA, obviously, and built a practice out there. I did.
1: First and foremost, it was servicing the one client, Universal Studios. And that was pretty cool stuff to be in LA in the media and entertainment space and really still as a transactional lawyer doing deals. And uh, some will recall that Seagram really transformed itself at that time doing the acquisition of Polygram and theme parks and movies and music. It was quite fun. But at the same time, recognizing that you had to build beyond a single client. And so with the benefit of Simpson's great private equity practice, expanded relationships into private equity on the West Coast and then continued some relationships on the East Coast and built from there.
0: And and then how did you end up moving to, to Sidley? So I had
1: built the other office to 25 lawyers, about five partners and 20 associates, but that was about all the appetite that the firm had. And it was fun and profitable and successful, but it had sort of plateaued. And somebody smart, I guess, came to me and said, how's that working out for you? Wouldn't it be more fun to continue to build and to have more resources and more support from a firm for which LA is is meaningful and the areas that you practice in are meaningful? And so I took a meeting. And to all those out there, I commend you to sometimes just take that meeting. You might learn something. And it, it went from there. That's... Uh, Peeling the different layers back. I met more and more interesting people. And fundamentally, I was excited by the opportunity to build something special and lasting.
0: How how do you balance that, Dan, the the desire to practice and then the desire to be deeply involved in management? Was was management something that over time became more and more important to you? Or was it something that you you always enjoyed and, and wanted to do more of? So, I think it all starts with the
1: lawyering and the deal making and being a good lawyer, and I really like that part of my life and that part of my job, but it turns out I guess I'm a good manager. I think what i'm most good at is is identifying and connecting and elevating that talent to their best possible version of themselves and you know when i'm surrounded by clients and friends and colleagues, they seem to say that that's what I do. And I stay in touch. And I find ways to motivate people in positive ways, I guess. And that has become the management style that I've embraced. And it's it, it, it seems pretty obvious to me. It doesn't seem like a lot of work. But I couple that with some communications. Sometimes an important part of this job is just being empathetic, understanding, communicating. I'll tell you, there's been no greater truth to that statement than during the coronavirus and then the aftermath of the recent deaths and protests. And, you know, those skills for which none of us uh, were trained in law school or maybe even in life have all been called into use in the last 12 weeks.
0: At Sidley you've built the, the practice and, and as part of that done a fair amount of hiring uh, both in los Angeles and and elsewhere. How do you think about hiring and did you have some kind of platonic ideal of Sidley or, or if it's m a or private equity practice that you wanted to? Achieve, or was it more looking at what the possibilities were in any given market at any given time, and and thinking how you might be able to develop those opportunities? Yeah,
1: that's interesting. When I first came, I really was focused on the premium middle market M and A practice that I had developed at my former firm, and just adding it on to Sidley's amazing uh, resume, but it turned out that we could do so much more. I was also, I guess, focused on LA and it turned out that it could really be global. So when looking to recruit, what we identified, first of all, was that it was better to be proactive than reactive. And so, you know, thanks to all the recruiters and headhunters who sent us unsolicited resumes, but we were really focused on who in the market is competing effectively with us who in the market is on the wrong platform and would be better you know uh, on ours and who in the market would be a good partner a good relationship both to us and to their clients as opposed to just trying to buy business you know it is still a partnership and it is still a firm and so those cultural elements and relationship elements counted for a lot because you're going to have good times and bad. Lots of clients who are nice enough to join us when when a partner joins us may not be active in a particular year. It's sometimes hard to gauge, but if you're loyal to them and they're loyal to you, then you can get through a lot. So relationship mattered, culture mattered, obviously quality mattered. And, and that's what we set about doing. And we've recruited some of the best talents in the world at this point from you know, Alex Temmel in Boston, and Brian Wassner, Adam Weinstein, John Butler in New York, and Medi Codedad, Josh DeCloe here in LA. Just in the recent past, all of these people were people that were sought after by lots of great law firms and landed with us. And I would say that the key connector to why they chose Sidley was twofold. One, that their clients would be celebrated on this platform. You know, some of the major firms that play in this space have aimed so high that if you're not a bulge bracket firm, you may not get the proper care and feeding and attention. You may not be as valued or celebrated. And, and we set about saying that we can do better. And the second factor was they wanted to be a part of building something. For the longest time, I'd send out this book to these uh, lateral candidates, and it said smart people should build things. Turns out that's a book by Andrew Yang, who ran for president, but I was sending it out before he announced his candidacy. And I was sending it out in little brown packages that, that didn't have any name or return address on it. Just they knew that when they got it, it was from me because it said smart people should build things. And most of them came in wanting to build something and we're incredibly proud of what we've been able to build so far.
0: You talked about, in your own career, taking the breakfast that led to your coming to Sidley. On the other side of the ledger, what do you try and learn when you're, when you're meeting with someone whom you think of as a prospective lateral, even if you think the odds that that person will move are, are relatively low? What, what are you trying to learn? What are you trying to convey? And, and what are you studying in that person?
1: David, it's really interesting that you asked that question because I enjoy meeting people and talking to them. And sometimes I'll surprise them by just asking them, you know, what they're passionate about besides the law or tell me about your family. At the end of the day, you know, we're going to be partners and I want to know something more about the person than just what their client list is or their billings and collections history was. So part of it is just trying to learn about the person another thing i'll talk to them about is what's the push and more importantly what's the pull because mm-hmm. everybody has a little bit of a frustration at their former firm or a or something that isn't being satisfied and then there'll be something about us hopefully that's attractive it's sometimes funny and disappointing when when in the pull question they go right back to the push. <laughs> and they start, you know, they'll say, well, I hope your management isn't like our management, you know, that kind of thing. And hopefully, we're able to sell a little bit of what would be attractive to them if they came. But I think that captures a lot of what we spend the time on in an interview. And maybe if I could add one more, it mm-hmm. would be the depth of their relationship. You know, a lot of great lawyers, I mean, a lot of fine lawyers have yeah. have done a deal for someone. But a deal, especially in the private equity space where deals are are what private equity firms do, a single deal or even a couple isn't usually a relationship. And what I'm trying to gauge is how invested are you in your clients and vice versa beyond just that they hired you for one or two deals.
0: You mentioned headhunters a few minutes ago. Do you do you use headhunters? And if so, what is the the value that they're really critical in adding?
1: I do use headhunters, and they're professionals, especially the good ones and the ones who are succeeding are really professionals, and they they can add real value. Of course, in the first instance, they can introduce you to someone that you might not have been aware of, or you might not be aware that 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 person is interested in potentially moving. Uh, But also I've done a number of hires where we didn't use a headhunter and boy, then you're left to doing all the mechanics yourself and even keeping it going and pushing and getting the next meeting scheduled, all that kind of stuff, the blocking and tackling of it is a real value that a good headhunter can provide. They, they make it look easy. But when you're busy with your own deals, and when you're busy managing and doing all the other things that we have to fill to, to also find the time to keep the ball rolling. And time is really the important factor in executing on a potential lateral because you don't want to lose momentum and traction. And that's where they can really play a, a, a very big role.
0: You do a lot of work in particular for for Cirrus and Zelnick Media. Can you talk a little bit about each of those relationships and and a couple of deals you've done in in recent years for those clients?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. The relationships in each case are very long-term. And when the Cirrus team were starting out in private equity, they were at a firm called Ripplewood, and I was probably a first-year partner. And I got a call to help Ripplewood uh, with a transaction on the West Coast. Their historic counsel didn't have a West Coast office. And the team wanted a lawyer who was facile with the issues. And, and that turned out to be me. And that one small deal, uh, which we all look back on and remember fondly, turned into, first of all, a number of add-ons. But more than that, in that conversation with the clients, we we talked about the fact that I had spent time in Japan and and more significantly that their whole focus was at Ripplewood was going to be Japan, starting with the big Shinsei Bank deal, but also a number of other deals that ultimately I did with them, Uh, Nippon Columbia, Denon and Marantz, the home electronic equipment stereo company, Japan Telecom, which was at that time the largest LBO in Japan, where we first bought it from Phillips and sold it nine months later to a company called SoftBank. So that relationship started with the team at Ripplewood. They then moved to another firm, to Steve Cohen's hedge fund, which was then called SAC Private Capital Group. And we did a number of deals there. And then they launched their own fund called Cirrus. And they've had this just a bunch of terrific guys who built a terrific enterprise and have done a host of deals. It's an alphabet soup of, of deals. We did uh, PGI and EFI and uh, Zura and TechElec and Polycom is known to a lot of people. It's mostly in the TMT space, but with a special focus on telecom and technology a terrific relationship. I'm very grateful for it. On the ZMC side, my first point of contact might've been Andrew Vogel, who also worked, but as an, as an associate at Ripplewood, and then went over to ZMC and introduced me to other members of the team, including Strauss Zelnick and Jordan Turkowitz and Seymour and so many others. And if Cirrus is more in the technology and telecom side of TMT, then ZMC is more on the media side of that equation. And a deal that I'm particularly proud of was Cast and Crew, which we both bought and sold ultimately to Silver Lake and some others uh, that we've done with them. So again, a long-term relationship starting with folks who grew up together.
0: Uh, and I, I assume when you're, you're training even young associates now, you, you tell them these stories and suggest to them that it might be a good idea to stay in touch with uh, the associates at the private equity firms or investment banks or the young in-house lawyers at, at companies because, of course, those relationships can, can develop over time.
1: Absolutely. All of my mentors used to tell, you know, remind us of the stories of how they grew up together with their clients. And I reinforce that by actually, of course, now we're we're limited on our travel, but by traditionally sending our associates to meet with those clients, after, often after a deal, you know, so many of the deals are done remotely, even before COVID-19. And, but, but I think it's important to meet in person and to build on those relationships. You can market a lot, but your best opportunity to bond with clients is through the deals, in my view, and, and staying connected to them in the aftermath of a deal, staying connected with the management team and the portfolio company, and not just at the partner level, as you say, but really at the associate level.
0: Um, finally, could could you talk a little bit about LBGT issues and, and issues of diversity, which have been very important to, to you throughout your career?
1: I'm happy to talk about that. And it wasn't always true throughout my career that I was happy to talk about LGBT issues or issues of diversity. When When I began practicing law, I was Far more secretive personally and professionally. It was probably eight years before I came out to the partners and associates at my prior firm. And they turned out to be incredibly understanding and supportive as well. But I was reluctant to share that part of my personal life. My partner and I broke numerous barriers simply by being friends with the other associates and partners and breaking barriers by just attending events and being the first to do so. It's actually a funny story. Years later, when I was nominated by Chambers for an LGBTQ diversity award at Sidley, an older friend of mine commented on how far the world had come from being an associate in the closet to running for gay lawyer of the year. (laughs) I I, I didn't win. (laughs) But I think at this stage of my career, the opportunity to talk about those issues, to share with associates that they are not alone on their journey and that they are valued is something that's important to me because I've achieved some measure of success, not because I was gay and not in spite of the fact that I was gay. It just is a part of me that is somehow relevant to those other People in the community, and I want them to know that they're not alone, and that they too can succeed.
0: Could you compare where law firms are on LBGTQ mm-hmm. issues, you know, now as opposed to even five or ten years ago?
1: Oh, it's absolutely um, a different world probably even than five or 10 years ago, I'd say more like 10. Law firms and law schools now have affinity groups for this community. Lawyers are more open than ever about their sexual orientation. Sidley and other law firms are celebrating the 50th anniversary of gay pride. I think the challenge lies in learning to see and celebrate the so-called differences of diverse peoples as a positive. And that happens only through greater acceptance and inclusion. But the legal community has had such an important influence on the rights of this community from the gay marriage cases to the recent decision on on employment law. And I'm proud that in each of those two cases, Sidley and I have had a small part to play. We, We represented the Williams Institute as an amicus in each of the marriage case, which was cited by Justice Kennedy in his opinion. And in in the most recent cases, uh, I brought those cases on a pro bono basis to to Sidley. But whether it's a big impact litigation, like the ones I've described, or just showing up at an event where you're joining with your friends and others as an ally, the climate and the level of acceptance is is completely different than when I started. And it was, as I said, much more, at least in my mind, in the first instance, but even at the firms and at the law schools, much more secretive and closeted.
0: And, and finally, you, you alluded to this early in our conversation. Obviously, there's been incredible social stress in recent weeks because of nationwide protests, Black Lives Matter. How does the legal community's experience with LBGTQ, which has been really successful, what are the lessons of that for issues of ethnic and racial diversity, which have been, honestly more challenging for big law generally.
1: David, I'm no expert on these areas. I just try and lead and learn and be as empathetic and understanding as I can be, and it's in that where I think the parallels lie. I think it was only when remember that Ellen DeGeneres came out of the closet and was fired for it. So that really connects the dots pretty well. And It's only in that coming out, it's only in the learning that your dentist and your doctor and your lawyer and your daughter or son is LGBT that you begin to relate differently to those people than you did before learning that. And in the same way, our African-American colleagues and friends have been living professional lives at the law firms and doing a great job of it, but leaving at the door their personal experiences, which others of us just couldn't understand. And it's only now in the telling of that, that we can gain greater empathy. When my partners and associates, I I I have a recollection of an associate who went to the best private school in LA, to USC Law School, as I recall was working at an elite Wall Street firm, driving a Mercedes that he bought from his brother who was at the local Mercedes dealer, best friends with the mayor, Mayor Garcetti, and he would routinely get stopped and checked for why he's he driving that car. And only last week, one of my partners told me the same story, a leading light, American College of Trial Lawyers, African-American woman everybody wants her on their cases. She drives a Mercedes coincidentally as well. She said, on the she leaves it at the door. Nobody knows. She doesn't discuss it. But on the way over, she'll get stopped. And they'll say, who's the owner of this car? My point is, it's only in the telling of those stories that the rest of us have greater understanding and empathy. And in hearing it, we say it's unacceptable. It's intolerable in much the same way that people said that, about the LGBT community. So I don't think people are overtly racist or prejudiced and they want to be allies, but we get licensed to do so, to be advocates and allies when we really begin to understand that our colleagues and our friends are living a life with different experiences, some of which need to change.
0: Dan, thank you so much for
1: joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And it's really been a pleasure. I love listening to this podcast when when other really impressive people are on it. So thanks
0: for including me. Thanks again for Drinks With The Deal. I'm David Marcus.